0: Today, I would like to uh, cover Chapter 14 in about 15 minutes. (laughs) Oh! Are you kidding? But to do so, um, part of the reason I'm saying that is Chapter 14, uh, which we have already begun uh, last week. That's why I think we can do that. He is addressing... What must have been a very controversial issue at uh, the Corinthian, the little Corinthian church there in the first century, which was um, their unhealthy, that is, spiritually unhealthy emphasis on speaking in tongues. Now, today, unless you're in a a Pentecostal church or charismatic church, there is somewhat of a difference, but anyway, or you're in a um, certain uh, type of evangelical church where it may come up. For the most part, that's probably not an issue you've been terribly familiar with. Many people that, uh, especially, you know, who've come to know the Lord in, in just the a, last a couple of years and have very little exposure to some of the, the more difficult parts of the New Testament. They don't even know what you're talking about when you when you discuss speaking in tongues. So I want to be a little careful and a little sensitive to some of that. Because I think the larger issue for us, uh, ter- certainly in terms of how we apply all that's going on in these three chapters, is to remember this. Now, this is a mess. I, I know it is. But um, I have this on a slide, but obviously... Uh, can't use those here because uh, they don't have that capability. but let me review a little bit what is uh, what is going on here in these three chapters. If you were here and I don't remember who was or who was not here uh, about uh, four weeks ago when we started this four or five weeks ago but I believe the major theme of these three chapters chapter 12 chapter 13, chapter 14 that comes from the questions they were asking Paul. Remember these sections Paul's responding to questions we have to try to figure out what exactly was the question. But I think the larger question they were asking him was something he would have taught them. What, is it, what does a spiritually mature person look like? What, what is spiritual maturity? How does that maturity fit into the, the, the larger question of the church, the body of Christ? And so I'm going to walk you through this. is messy, but I think you can figure it out. It's not terribly difficult. But it begins, that is, spiritual maturity, spirituality begins with the confession of faith. Chapters 12, 1 through 3. Jesus is Lord. It begins with doctrine. It begins with the, the universal lordship and sovereignty of Jesus, which is extremely important in the first century because of Rome and all that. Secondly... It begins with, a. or continues with, a proper understanding of the gifts, of spiritual gifts. It's not, it, it is to some extent understanding that everybody has a gift and how we think about that. But more importantly, that the, the goal or the purpose or the end of gifts is edification. It's, it's to help people grow in their faith. It is not for your own edification. It's not for your self-elevation. If that's your focus, that's abusing the gift and that must have been a major issue at Corinth because he tells us that they're seeking the greater gifts, the prominent gifts which would seem to indicate those that elevate themselves and he says that's, that's not what the gifts were all about thirdly, in really the, the rest of chapter 12 it continues with a proper understanding of the church the church as organism, not as organization but it's organ, meaning it's the living body of Christ. And like in the human body, the legs and the arms and the ears and the eyes and they are all part of it, even though they have separate functions, they're all part of it, and they're interdependent on one another. There's equality and there's interdependence. This idea of elevating yourself is contrary to the doctrine of the church. And then thirdly, or fourthly, excuse me, which we spent basically two weeks on, is understanding that love, agape, that very important word for love, which is the love of God manifested toward humanity, is the love we are supposed to be evidencing and manifesting. That is the key to the spiritual life. It's that one aspect, that one quality, that one gift, that one whatever label you want to give it that cannot be faked. You can't fake this consistently. And again, it's the love of God that's manifested and now made possible for us because of of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Now chapter 14 then comes back to this issue that um, must have been a difficult issue in the Corinthian church. And I think it probably gets back to what he said here and what he said here. There was a certain group, and I'm inferring this, but I think this is probably accurate. There was a certain group in Corinth that believed they had that gift and they were using that gift in public fairly extensively. And everybody, everybody was looking at them with two responses. Either it was causing dissension and division or it was saying, oh, I wish I were like that. I wish I were as spiritual as Joe is or as Joni is, or whatever the name you can imagine. And so you have this kind of super spiritual group that because they're speaking in tongues, they think they're the best, and everybody else is kind of looking at them either with derision and, and, and causing division or, oh, I wish I were like that. And so it must have been that because he devotes a chunk of chapter 14 to this issue. And he doesn't condemn the gift But what he does is he tries to bring it into its focus. And the key, I believe, I really do, the key to how the church is to function when it comes to the gifts is order. Because he's going to say in the middle of the chapter, our God is not a a God of confusion. He is not the author of confusion and disorder. So the inference is, clearly, if that's what's happening in your church, something's wrong, (laughs) And so he sets up, um, I mean, what really are rules or standards by which the gifts are to be exercised. And it always drives you back to chapter 12, verse 7. The gifts are given to edify the body. The gifts are given for the common good. And if that isn't happening, something's wrong. And so he seems to be teaching us, and I think that's important for us even today in the 21st century. Now, that doesn't mean that church can't be joyous and sometimes boisterous and that, you know all the different traditions, but there's order. Chaos is not conducive to the spiritual life. It's not conducive to worship. It's not conducive to the exercising of the gifts. So that's kind of the big picture. And so what I'd like to do if it's all right with you, because I want to try to stay away from the controversy of this issue in in the late 20th century. I mean, I guess we can get into it if you want to, but in many of our churches, and I I think, I mean, although I don't know where a lot of you go, but in many of our churches, this just isn't an issue. I mean, it's just not an issue in our churches. It isn't an issue that's dividing, or it's just not a major issue, but maybe it is, and we certainly can, can talk a little bit about it. So do you understand? I'm not trying to lay ground rules, but in the way I am for how I want to approach this. I just I want to try to stay away from, well, should a person be able to speak in tongues? Is tongues the gifts for today? Should we you know, we can get into that a little bit? But it's more important is the major theme of this chapter, because he does talk about gifts of prophecy and knowledge and other things. It's got to be orderly. And if it's not done orderly where edification for the common good is occurring, then you're doing it wrong. This is abusing the gift. So, um, okay? So any questions, uh, comments about this? this? It seems to me, although this is sloppy and I violate the issue of order, but that's because I can't write neatly. But this, this gives, I think, coherence to these three chapters. and It, it gives a, a, a real clarity of understanding of what he's really getting at here. And so that's what I've tried to do. All right?
1: Yeah. I like the illustration
0: give us an idea real quick what that okay last week we talked about the I, I, I think we got about the first five verses done but again if you if you look at those those words in verse 3 he's contrasting speaking in tongues and prophesying speaking in tongues without an interpreter doesn't help anybody whereas somebody's prophesying remember is not just for telling the future but more importantly that's how it was normally used you're 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 proclaiming truth that's already revealed, and so he says, when that occurs, edification occurs, exhortation occurs, consolation, or you could translate that comfort occurs. That's good stuff. Whereas this, you know I'll just use this because this is apparently what was happening. he's afraid because he's just to my right. He stands up in the public service, starts speaking in tongues. And nobody understands what he's saying. There's no interpreter. And so, what is Paul's conclusion? That benefits no one. That benefits no one in the body. No one is, no one is benefiting from Fred exercising that gift. So, his counsel is sit down. Where someone that proclaims the truth is edifying, is exhorting, that's calling to obedience, and comforting. Because that's what God's word does. Okay? So then what he does is he, he he talks about, again, in verse 6, he, he uses the verse, first person uh, pr- uh, pr- uh, singular pronoun, I. He's getting a little personal here. But he talks about things like revelation, knowledge, and prophecy, and teaching. Those things can all edify, can all benefit. But speaking in tongues, I'm the only one that gets benefit out of that. And then he just uses some examples, you know, from from music, a bugle player, someone speaking in a foreign language. If you don't understand what that person's doing, nobody is benefiting from that, but that singular person.
2: Can you define uh, revelation? Uh, how Paul is intending it here?
0: Well, a direct a direct word from God. That's apocalypto, That's what it means. So his counsel is, verse 13, if there is the exercise of the gift of speaking in tongues, it must be interpreted. If it's not interpreted, it is of no value. And he uses, again, he, he uses some personal comments about his own life in verse 19, verse 18, verse 19, verse 15. But if you notice verse 15, he, he key, and does it in 14 too. He compares and contrasts a human spirit in the mind. If the mind isn't engaged, there's no edification. And that simply means, uh, again, I'll just use Fred because he's done my right. Fred stands up and, and speaking in tongues. Okay, it's an emotional experience for him. It, it can be very valid exercise of the gift, but if it's not interpreted, all I'm seeing and all I'm hearing is an emotional experience. Um, manifestation of something and I don't know what he's saying my mind isn't engaged and so Paul's just saying the mind has to be engaged so spirituality spiritual expression is, is both the emotion and soul as well as the mind if the mind isn't engaged edification does not occur that's kind of a that's kind of an important principle it seems to me because, and I think you will f- follow me here, God has made us where we're very emotional beings. Emotion is a part of who we are. But if all you do in responding to anything or dealing with anything is responding at the emotional level, that, that one, that can be very dangerous, two, it can be very superficial. Because an emotional experience does not necessarily mean it's a truthful edifying experience. You want to chew on that a little bit? <laughs> just because you experience something, uh, I'm saying this in a very broad sense, I' not I don't have anything specifically in mind, but just because you experience something does not necessarily mean that's from God. It could be a gastronomical response in your stomach. Now, I'm, I'm being really cynical in a way, but I, I hope you follow what I'm saying because that's the point Paul's making in these, these cluster of verses. Emotional response is not all there is to spirituality, because every, and you know I can get real extreme with this. Pagan rituals are highly emotional but usually void of truth. Christianity is the intersection of, uh, uh, maybe a better way of saying, is the complemented relationship of emotion and the mind. Because truth is communicated through the intellect. It demands and insists on understanding. Now, when I came to faith in Christ, it was a very emotional experience me. There were a lot of tears and all of that. But at the same time, it was a clear response of my will and my intellect. I understood what I was doing. I mean, am I making sense? You understand what I'm saying? And so that's yes, he's trying to get them to see. It, it, there's nothing wrong with emotion. There's nothing wrong with the spiritual outburst. That's understandable. But it has to be complemented by by truth, by the mind, by an intellectual understanding of what's going on. And if all you do is speak in tongues, as an emotional outburst, and it's not interpreted, you might as well just sit down. Because the mind is not engaged. So, Daryl.
1: Tongues, and nobody interprets. Is that the fault or reflection on the person speaking in tongues, or somebody else who knew the interpretation but did,
0: didn't? Well, it could be. It could be either one there. I mean, it could. You, you think though
1: that the one wrong, wrong is the one speaking in tongues?
0: I think more than likely. Um, see, this is one of the this, and this gets into that larger question of, of what the gift of tongues really is. Um, we basically have two choices. It's either, like it's used, for example, in Acts 2, it is a known language that you, God supernaturally given you the ability to speak that, as Peter obviously had on the day of Pentecost, As you have thousands of people from different language groups all understanding what's saying. But anyway, uh, or the other choice is, or it can be both and, as some Pentecostals argue, it also is like a prayer language. It's it's um, gibberish is not a positive word, but I don't know what else to call it. I mean, to say gibberish. That's a very condescending word. I don't mean it that way, but it's just it's an un, it's a it's not a language. It's it's just um, emotional outbursts uh, and expressions, but it's it's not a language. I don't know how else to, There's so many different it's ways like people... expression of your spiritual... Yeah, it's... Yeah. And some have said only... And it's only because of verse 1 of chapter 14, uh, or I mean uh, of, of chapter 13, that it's the language of angels. There's no biblical basis for that, that speaking in tongues of the language of angels. Paul's speaking there in exaggerated language. That doesn't mean... That. So I think we have to be real careful with that. But... So if, if we're saying, uh, I would lean more toward that end of it simply for the exegetical study of how words used in the New Testament, that it is a language, that God is giving you the supernatural ability to speak for a reason. And therefore, for that to be uh, validated and edifying, someone has to be able to interpret that. And, and so, you know, if, if it's interpreted, then God is using it and it's achieving its ends of edification.
1: So
0: you understand it, that language, you're just as led as that other... Exactly. Spoke it's, 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 it's much as a gift as the person who's speaking it. That's right. And that's why we, we know this occurred in a number of instances in the New Testament. Um, it was for the purpose of speaking the truth of the gospel uh, to people in another language, in a language you didn't know or you hadn't learned or you hadn't acquired. And uh, Paul also uses, in this chapter, as a matter of fact, the word sign. It was a sign, and it fits with what is in Hebrews chapter 2, which I want to look at before we're done. It's a very important verse in understanding some of these early gifts. But without without it being interpreted, um, it, it either means there's someone who doesn't have the gift or has the gift and isn't exercising it, or... You're, you're really not exercising a gift there. Well, there have been many, and, this, I, 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 and I don't mean this as a broad criticism of all Pentecostal situations, because I don't think that's fair, but there have been many instances, uh, and it's been studied by people who study these things, that some people speak in tongues, it's something they just learn. They, they learn to do it. It's not a supernatural gift up there. They just learn to do it. And uh, you know, that raises some really, I think, difficult questions for us of how we should uh, view or process that kind of thing. But the Bible seems to indicate very, very clearly that you do not seek. Okay, I want to sit down and teach you this gift. That's, that is not how the New Testament approaches these things. And why only tongues is something they seem to focus. I want to teach you how to speak in tongues. Nowhere in the Bible are, you, are we instructed to do that so why I and mean, it's because of and again uh, w- without being critical but it's just an historical fact speaking in tongues is the vital center of, of historic classic Pentecostalism in the early 20th century mm-hmm. and if you didn't if you couldn't do that there's something wrong with you so they would just teach you how to do it and, which again that is not that just doesn't seem to fit now a lot of that settled down it, you know there are I mean, some areas where you still see it. it's just settled down 20 years ago, it was a big issue. It, it goes in spurts in history. Uh, and, it, you know, it was a huge spurt in the early 20th century. The Azusa Street Revival, and then it died down. And there was another huge spurt right after World War II, and then it died down. And then in the 70s, another huge spurt. And then John Wimber comes along, and then another huge spurt. <laughs> but now it's died down again. It's just, I mean, you still see it, but it's just not... That's why I'm trying to be... I don't want to say any more about it, but that's a... <laughs>
2: Um, I'm familiar with Pentecostal Church, um, and I think you're right on with your balance. Um, there was, um, in, the, in the 50s, Notre Dame was kind of taken up by that a little bit, and, um, and uh, I knew a lot of people in the Pentecostal Church. Um, and actually, um, this will give, maybe give you a little balance. I received Christ in a Pentecostal church but I think Jim is on balance here with everything and um, I think as Christians we need to be you know sort of mindful not to dismiss them as not being Christians Uh, but I think what I've noticed in a lot of Pentecostal churches uh, and I don't have a lot of experience but My experience over the years with Pentecostal churches uh, is they have a real love for the Lord and uh, one of the sweetest women I will ever know was a Pentecostal gal and uh, I loved her dearly but um, that uh, they're very sincere and they can be sincerely wrong Uh, you know and, and as far as the edification of the church i've heard speaking in tongues i've heard the interpretation i've heard the speaking in tongues, no interpretation, and I think Jim's right on point with that that it doesn't really edify the church it's It's more disturbing than anything
0: it can be very disruptive it, it, can, know,
2: it can be very disruptive so i would I would say on balance having had that experience, and that's the only reason why I'm commenting. Is that we accept them as their profession of faith, that they are believers, even though they may need to be learned. Learned, you know, the scriptures a little bit more, I've noticed. Uh, so. That's, that's Well, you the, that you
0: I'm mentioned thinking. something. Uh, uh, yeah. You mentioned Notre Dame. Uh, one yeah. of the. One of the uh, really significant developments in late 20th century Catholicism was Catholic Pentecostalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Notre Dame was one of the centers of that. Yeah. And Pope John Paul II put his stamp of approval on Catholic Pentecostalism. Wow. And part of the reason uh, was not only what was happening in the United States, but also what was happening in Latin America. Because uh, Latin American... Um, uh, again, that's a broad statement because obviously it isn't true in every one of the areas. But in Latin America, Pentecostalism is a big part of the Catholic Church as well as a separate mm-hmm. entity. Wow. The fastest growing part of Christianity in Latin America is Pentecostalism.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's enormous. Uh, I was in Ecuador a couple of years ago. Well, it's more than a couple of years ago, about uh, 13 years ago. But uh, anyway, uh, I had a lot of frequent fire when I took up my kids and Peggy. And so we were in the jungle and up in the mountains, but then we ended in Quito. And I wanted to see the cathedrals of Quito, which is a magnificent city. And uh, we went through one uh, after another after another, and it was a, um, it was a Sunday. And so in, in the one, it was a, a little bit of a newer building per se, but the place was absolutely packed in contrast to the others. And the people were joyously singing, and then they were done singing, and then the priest got up and started preaching. And I mean, he's in Spanish, so I don't know Spanish. But I said to to the, the guy, that was my friend who was taking us around. I said, "What what's the difference? Oh, this is a Catholic Pentecostal church." And he said, "If you you the what he's saying, he is clearly preaching the gospel with crystal clear clarity." And I mean, the place was absolutely packed. It was, it was an amazing thing. To, I mean, it was the contrast between the older, more staid churches, which there were people there, but it wasn't terribly crowded, and it was—I mean, in comparison, I don't mean this in a mean way. It was just dull. But you go to this—I church. I mean, the thing—I was absolutely unbelievable. I just—I was stunned when we walked inside, and it was really—it was really uh, an interesting uh, for me, an interesting piece of evidence of what I had been studying, and I saw that's absolutely true. And it's just a, it's an interesting, God is using it. In spite of some of these excesses, God is using it. And uh, that's what Paul is trying to do. He's trying to keep the enthusiasm, but deal with the excess. If you are doing it just to edify yourself, you're abusing it, so knock it off. Now, I want to draw your attention to something. I think it's really important in putting all this in historic context. It's in Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 3 and 4, really. And what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's reviewing the proclamation of the gospel message in the first century. How shall we escape if we neglect so great of salvation? Well, what do you mean neglected? Well, it was first spoken through the Lord it was confirmed to us by those who heard, meaning the early apostles and the early converts. God also, verse 4, bearing witness with them by signs and wonders, by various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So we're reminded of something there. That little phrase, signs and wonders, is all over the Bible. It's in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. (coughs) Signs and wonders have a purpose. And that purpose is the proclamation and edification of truth. I often put it this way. God never does a miracle to show off. It always has a purpose. Every miracle Jesus Christ did had a purpose to it. And I think one of the greatest examples is, go to John chapter 5, it's the pools of Bethesda. There are literally dozens of people there wanting to be healed. And what happens? Jesus chooses one man. One man to heal. And it leads to an, an, this incredible block of teaching by, by the Lord Jesus because of this man's healing and so on. So I'm, I'm saying it because that's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's reminding us that the, the, the message is first preached by Jesus. It is validated by the many who come to faith, the disciples and then the outer circle. And all of this, God is bearing witness, validating this. The works dovetail with the words the works of Jesus and the early apostles dovetailed with their words, signs and wonders, various miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit, and so that is one of the reasons why. Um, I think we'll, we saw it in the end of chapter twelve some of those early some of those gifts were early sign gifts, and some suggest, and that's. Uh, it's a controversial topic, but some suggest that tongues was one of those, because it was the communicating of a known language that you didn't I'll learn or whatever. But, but that's, in one sense, that's beside the point. But I think this passage in Hebrews chapter two helps us keep this in perspective. I mean, Paul does a lot of miraculous things. Peter and John do a lot of miraculous things. You know, one, in, in chapter four of Acts. You know, there's a guy in, in Jerusalem at the temple. Stand up and walk. And the kids sing and sing, and he went leaping and I mean, praising God, went leaping, I forget, it's another word. But that's referring to that. I mean, why did they do that? There were literally hundreds of people they could have chosen to heal. But it was a part of the signs and wonders. It was validating the message of the gospel in Jerusalem. And so um, that's just an important reminder of what God, I should say, why God often does the things he does. And it could be one of the reasons why some of those signed gifts, certainly I don't believe the office of an apostle is in a functioning office in the church. Most, there are a few, but most churches don't have a church official called an apostle. And I think correctly so, because the, the, the qualifications for apostle are very, very, very narrow. And you had to have seen the resurrected Christ. Well, most of us would pass that test, you know, I mean, to have seen him, you know, what I mean... But anyway, all right. Um, if I can come back to chapter twelve, uh, excuse me, chapter fourteen, verse twenty-six and following, then what he does, uh, what Paul does there, is he simply lays down the pattern of order in worship, so that the gift can edify. And remember, the most controversial one in the, in the in the Corinthian church was tongues, as he keeps referring to it. Here's, it's got to be done orderly. Let all things be done for edification, the end of verse 26. That's the thesis. Let all things be done for edification. Not emotional outburst. Not superficiality. Not your warm fuzzies, but for edification. And so he just lays down an orderly way in which it's supposed to occur. And then he says the same thing about prophets in verse 29 and following. And then he says something about women in verse 34, which we're going to skip.
2: No, no.
0: No. So, no, he's... Just
2: no. where the recording goes blank. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah 18 seconds of silence. Oh, I got
2: it.
1: That's the only question I've had. In this whole
0: I think the, the way to understand verse 34 and following is in the context of what he's been saying about prophets. Prophets proclaiming the truth. And uh, Paul is saying that in that kind of a situation, women should not be involved in evaluating the prophets because there are many instances and we saw that in chapter 11 there are many instances where women both prayed and prophesied in the early church so this is an absolute silence it's in that context of evaluating the veracity of what the prophets are saying that's how I understand that and then we see in verse 40 the capstone which is the summary again of chapter 14 which is the summary of this point in the big circle let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. Because going back to the end of verse 26, let all things be done for edification. Without order, you will see confusion. And then you look at verse 33. God is not the God of confusion. If there is confusion and disorder and chaos, that's probably not of the Lord. Would because you, if there's disorder, confusion, and chaos, edification can't occur.
2: And would you say that, Jim, that that applies to women uh, speaking in church? Because a lot of women will teach Sunday school you know, to children.
0: And yeah, that's not what it, it's talking about. Evaluating the veracity of the prophets in the public service. Just what, well, no, it's just it, it's, 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 these are such hard things to, to discuss without getting into all kinds of controversy. But it, it, it's, you know, somebody reads that, let women keep silent in the churches. And they see that as an absolute categorical statement with yeah. no bounds. The bounds are the context in what he's saying this. He's talking about prophets and evaluating what the prophets are saying. Because you have so many other parts in the New Testament, you see women praying and prophesying in the church. In chapter 11, when you women pray and prophesy in the church. Okay, that means it's okay for them to pray and prophesy in church. But, you know, the the other thing about this, which he is not he's not dealing with this here. He isn't dealing with leadership issues. That's not what he's dealing with. You have to go to 1 Timothy 2. And there you see some discussions about role responsibilities. And it is an important, this is a difficult issue today. Uh, but um, can a woman be a lead senior pastor? And, you know, you're going to have a lot of discussion and debate about that. But if I understand what Paul is saying in First Timothy, the answer to that is probably no. Can a woman be on staff? Absolutely. I, mean, I don't see any in the scriptures that prohibit that. Can a woman be the head of the Christian I see Nothing in Scripture that prohibits that. But is and this is where you know you just you're going to create a buzzsaw in a lot of public meetings. But should a woman from the pulpit exposit Scripture? Probably not.
1: Unless
0: they're all women. Well, yeah. Now that's if it's like a Bible study or in a situation. Yeah. But probably not. Paul seems to be saying that rather clearly, and of course those thoughts are really popular today in many of our circles, to even talk like that. I mean, if there were half the room here were gals, uh, that, that could get some pushback on that. It's just so difficult. And, and part of the, and I'm going to go down a bunny trail, but I think it might be helpful here. Or maybe it won't be. But part of the difficulty in, in our culture today and within our culture and in many of our churches is we we ask the wrong question. We just ask the wrong question. The question the question is given the equality of a man and a woman, because that's what the Bible declares, given the equality of a man and a woman, Galatians three twenty eight. Men and women are equal in Christ. They both come to the Savior in the same way. That is, you know, this old Baptist preacher always says, "At the cross, everybody's equal." That's right. We're equal in the image bearing of God. Whatever the image bearing, uh, being an image bearer of God, Genesis one twenty-six and following, men and women are equal. He says it very clearly: male and female he created in the image of God. I'm not more in the image than my wife. I mean, that's just silly. And in 1 Peter 3, 7, equal and being joint heirs with Christ. Whatever exactly all that means. So given equality, are there role differences in the family? Sure. That's the right way to ask the question. Given equality, are there role differences in the church? given equality are the role differences in the larger culture. The Bible doesn't speak to that. The Bible has nothing to say about a woman, whether a woman should be a CEO or not. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It doesn't say anything. It doesn't speak to that. The Bible does speak to role responsibilities in the church and does speak to role responsibilities in the family. So given equality... Because what happens is we get all hung up dealing with the issue of equality, and that's what everybody debates. uh, Well, I'm not been asked to do that for a long time, but I used to be in a lot of these debates and panels and stuff like that. And my opening remarks were, I'm here, I stipulate equality between male and female. From my faith as a Christian, men and women are absolutely equal in God's eyes, in these three areas. The sensible, and to me, I would always say the common sense question then is always to ask, from, from God, our Creator, are the role differences in the institutions that are important to Him, in the family, in the church. And the Bible does speak to those things. And so then it's a matter of our Creator stipulating we're equal, but our Creator saying, I made you different, male, female, He created them. And I created them different for a lot of reasons, reproductive reasons, functioning reasons, Men and women are very different in so many areas. But the, the, the goal is always a complement. That when the man and the woman are working together toward the same goal, the complementary union is powerful. But you see, we can't you can't hardly frame the question that way anymore. I mean, you just can hardly do it. Because they stop back in you know, your first sentence, and you just you can't hardly get beyond that. Because then the fault of, of Humans not applying the equality issue properly and understanding roles is sin. That's the problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a problem for the man because what men do is they want to hammer women into submission. And the history of that is, you know, thousands of years old. And then women understanding that, then they, they seek to, to be their own boss at the expense of any complementary union with their husband. And it's just, It's, it's chaos. And it's just really sad. You just can't hardly have those discussions anymore.
2: When they talk about helpmate, that's in relationship to how God has created man and woman. Isn't it? I mean, it is, I will create mm-hmm. a helpmate. Mm-hmm. And that automatically defines there's, there's functions in our service to the Lord and in his ministry to, to other parties. Isn't that kind of what he's saying there? It isn't like in the secular world a helpmate that... This guy needs to know how to needs help from his wife in getting a a, a job or in carrying out a job or something. Isn't that God-oriented? Well, yeah, in that way. Actually, the, the that
0: Hebrew that? word yeah. that we translate "help," "helper," or "helpmate," or whatever, however you translate it in your Bibles, uh, is used of God many, many, many times. God is our helpmate, so it's not a derisive, demeaning term. It's a very positive term. And again, I, I think... And I mean, it's, it's so difficult to even have these discussions, unfortunately. But what I'm, I'm quite convinced is going on in chapter 2 of Genesis, which is where that comes from, mm-hmm. is God says it is not good for man to be alone. Adam, the man, the male. So I'm going to create a complement for him. That's really what that means. One who will complete him so that together in that Genesis 2.24 that one flesh union you are far 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 better together than if you were apart that, that majestic and, and quite uh, powerful thought of that one flesh union that, that's just a very powerful thought in scripture and, and, and that, so God is saying he's, he's saying something this is my design this is how I'm solving that there's something missing with Adam and I'm solving that by giving him a compliment, a helper, someone who completes him. And where he is weak, she's strong. Uh, um, strong Where she's weak, he's strong. So together, they're much better.
1: Yes.
0: And, it's like, and you, see, you have to think how God made us. You see that in the, in the physique of a woman and a man. They tell us that the left brain, right brain difference. I mean, all the emotion, I mean, all of those things together. And when you're together... And and then the the beauty and this is what is again you can hardly really talk like this but when a man servantly leads as a servant leads his family then the wife has that this is the way I define that has that disposition to yield that inclination to follow because God is assigning primary responsibility to the man and if things go wrong whom does he assign as blame the husband. And you see that, I mean, in Romans 5.12, Eve isn't even mentioned. Adam gets all the blame for the introduction of sin to the human race. Because Eve was deceived, Adam willfully and intentionally and defiantly took the fruit. So, I mean, all of those things, but I just can't, you can hardly intelligently talk about those things anymore. And I think that's one of the the sad sad aspects of so much of our culture. And uh, anyway. Jim, I I know it's a peripheral
1: question. It's not germane to what you were off the subject a little bit to go back to Genesis, but um, that that whole part there where uh, God created the light, the birds, the the fish, the animals, and then he created man. And after each of those first ones, he said, saw that it was good. good but when it comes to man he saw, God saw that it was not good for man to be alone since he was God and could do it I don't want to say right the first time <laughs> but why Why did we have that happen in that way I've often wondered
0: I, I know exactly what you're saying I, I don't know if we can answer that quite definitively but it seems as if from the material in Genesis 2 uh, verse 18 through the end of the chapter that God is God did it that way for two reasons one to, to have the man clearly understand why he needs a wife because Adam's alone but Adam doesn't realize he's, I mean, he doesn't know what that means to be alone that's just how God's created him But remember what God does. He says, okay, I'm going to bring all the animals in front of you, and I want you to name them, which means much more than just there's a giraffe. It means it's an indication of what God is declaring and had declared in chapter 1. You are my theocratic steward. You have dominion authority over my world. Rule it for me, which is an astonishing thought, but that's exactly what he says. And so what, what, what does Adam see? The object lesson, lesson is, I'm the only one of God's creatures that's alone. I have a need. The others, they're, they're in pairs. He, he would have seen, I mean, I'm assuming, uh, we don't know how long this is, but he would have seen them in pairs. I mean, he would have seen what God's done, but not for me. And I think, so that's one. It's for Adam to understand why he needed the helper. he needed the compliment. is for all of us to understand, by all of us I mean everybody who reads and studies and then see how through the rest of the Bible that's unpacked that that one flesh union is the perfection of God's uh, uh, goal for the human race's dominion stewards male and female he created them and it helps us to understand the dynamics of that one flesh union Man alone can't do it. Man, males alone can't do it.
2: That's kind of a neat statement to make, because I think man tends to think.
0: Oh, exactly. Oh, exactly. We can do it. I, I don't need. Yeah, well, you know as a man, I don't have any need. Oh, yes. <laughs> you know, but it's, just, it's, it's, a, it's like a very powerful object lesson that the one-flesh union, which is Genesis 2.25, is the male and the female complementing together in this union where they are so much stronger together than if they were independently apart. And, that, and then, the, if I can add one more thought to this, then that gives enormous significance to Ephesians 5.32, where Paul has just discussed the role of the man, the role of the woman, the role of the husband wife, and wife in marriage, and he says... This is a mystery. And everybody says, amen, <laughs> you know, okay? But he says, this, it's, it's, at first it sounds strange, but I am speaking of Christ in his church. But what he's saying there is very clear. As a husband loves his wife unconditionally, as Christ loves the church, and as a woman has that inclination to follow, just the position to yield to her husband, just like she does to Jesus, you see an archetype of the church. And the word he uses is is actually proclaiming, as you live out, the relationship of Jesus and his church and vice versa. So you you come away from the Genesis 2 passage and the Ephesians 5 passage, which is the fullest expression of all that, with a clear understanding. Marriage is a supernatural institution. It's supernatural. Without Christ, without Christ it's not gonna work. But with Christ, it becomes that, that, that beautiful union which is how God wants us to fulfill that dominion steward responsibility. Man alone, male alone can't do it. But male and female, he created them together for the purposes of coming together as a supernatural institution in light of the cross and the whole redemptive program to even illustrate and manifest and be an archetype of the supernatural relationship of Christ and his church. I mean, you to, you, all of a sudden you understand, my goodness, it shows you how superficially we treat marriage. It's the most important institution God created. And its complement is the church, as you, as you know.
1: Jim, we're told that mankind, we are made in God's image. Yes. Um, and yet God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, typically is considered as masculine, and it's not feminine. When God gave man a wife, a woman, for their union, as you just explained, then we became different
0: than that. Um, uh, we became different than that. I'm uh, not sure what you mean by that. We became different by that.
1: Well, different than that in that God, God is, 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 is
0: all masculine. There's no fit Well, he chooses to reveal himself with masculine pronouns. That's, that's right. I mean, because God's spirit, you know, and I'm, I don't know whatever masculine exactly means. My, this is my view, Gerald, on why God's chosen to do that. Because the church is his bride, which is always spoken of in the feminine pronoun. Follow me? And so, again, I mean, maleness to God isn't the same thing as the maleness to us around the table. Because God's spirit... But God, I think God has chosen, and, and I, it's the only explanation that I think makes sense, but God has chosen in his word always to reveal himself with a masculine pronoun. You know, he, he did this, etc. But then it, it seems to make a little more sense when we see the, the church then, the church is always, well not always, but the church in terms of what God's doing is always referred to as the bride of Christ, and it's always referred to as a, in a female pronoun, a feminine pronoun, and yeah, you know, like in Revelation and the marriage supper of the Lamb, and all those kinds of things, where you you see it. And again, think like in Ephesians five thirty-two. So, I think that's maybe the best. That's the best shot I can give in trying to put that together. But you can see why it is, and, and I, I'm going to have to bring this to a conclusion. But you can see why. When we, we come to a verse like verse 34, and when we talk about marriage, when we talk about male, female, we have to back up, and we have to kind of say, okay, you've got to let me talk for about three minutes to lay out the basic principles that the Bible lays out for us. But if you just want to start with, you're saying women aren't equal to men. That, but no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. Oh, you're saying men are superior to women. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what, that's not what the Bible teaches Are you going to let me explain what the whole corpus of biblical revelation says about this? Or do you just want to camp on what the culture is saying? It's a bunch of rabbis who are making women keep barefoot and pregnant. That is not the teaching of Christianity. That doesn't mean that that hasn't happened. But that's because of sin. That isn't God's fault. So if you will let me explain. But today, I mean, I used to be able to explain. I I can hardly explain anymore. Because one, people don't want to give me four or five minutes because they just want to strangle me and say I represent some old rabbinic teaching, which you, know, it's just, you just can't hardly. That's really sad because it's it's a beautiful it's it's a beautiful teaching when you are able to present the inte- it's it's beautiful. It has nothing to do with inferiority or superiority. It has nothing to do with equality or inequality. That's not what it's about. And it's, it is so important to God, but it's just, it's unfortunate. And I honestly, I really do, I really believe that's one of the reasons why we are just seeing before our very eyes in our culture just the downward spiral, because we are rapidly running away from what is really important to God. And, you know, the way God made his world, if we run away from it, let's not expect his blessing. It just isn't going to happen. Real quick, Jim
2: man fulfills woman and woman fulfills man according to God's plan is that kind of what you're saying it's not a yeah. one's better than the but it's a fulfilling oh, yeah. of, of, yeah, of humanity far.
0: oh yeah it's the, it's the ultimate uh, uh, it's the ultimate fulfillment uh, that God has for the purposes of man, woman, male, female in, in his creation but what the New Testament adds, and what really the New test the Old Testament so clearly lays out as well, the first step in that is acknowledging and putting your faith in the Lord. Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: I mean that's the st- that's step one. Uh, but it- it's um, you know my daughter teaches fifth grade, and um, she-, she and Greg were over the other night. And we were talking about she's she's really a good teacher, but. She was saying she has 20 students, or fifth graders. Seven of the 20 come from a two-parent home. Mm -hmm. The other 13, and she uh, just—it's John. Really works hard at connecting with these 13 kids. But she said, "Dad, you know, it's just—it's just so clear that when people don't follow God's design, the children are going to be the ones who really suffer." And these poor kids. I mean, it's just. And they just—they, I mean, every one of them. Everyone is thirteen, and Peggy goes up every Tuesday and reads with Joanna's kids. Um, it's kind of a neat thing she's able to do. But Peggy's gotten to know these kids too, and your heart just breaks for them. One of these little boys—he doesn't know where he's going to sleep that night. He never knows when he goes home. It could be the neighbor, it could be an aunt, or it could be a grandma. He just never knows because it all depends on whether mommy has her boyfriend. You know, you just you think oh, poor little kid, and so for Joanna to have any discussion about homework, I mean, that's, you know, that's it's nothing that's more irrelevant in a situation like this than a little boy doing his homework, and he just he doesn't do it. You know, he just and it's just you just multiply that, and then you let that roll times thousands. I, I guess what maybe hundreds of thousands through our culture. You, oh man, I mean, it's just really. But it gets back to what we're talking about right here in these last couple minutes. God's perfect design for the institution of the family. And if we are not serious about following, and you can't follow it, I don't believe, you really can't follow it without Christ. But, you know, given that, then, and the difference is just immense. And, and it's the tragedy. It's It's hard to be optimistic. But our optimism and hope is not centered in What's happening in culture? It's what's it's what's in the Lord. So, anyway, alrighty. Next week we start chapter fifteen. It's a long chapter, the longest chapter in all of Paul's thirteen epistles. But it's on the resurrection, and we're going to spend a lot of time on that. It's by design that we're going to be talking about this during Easter. God, has all set up. <laughs> Absolutely, that's not true. I had no idea we'd be on an Easter.
2: Let us pray for you, Jim, because you always pray for us. Can we do that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. God, I thank you for Jim. We all do. We thank you for his love for the Lord, the love for this word that he brings to us so faithfully every week. We pray that your blessing and strength of of his relationship with you would just be strengthened each day, and give him words and, and your words, Father, to say as he shares with us and with other groups throughout the city, God and how it changes lives. Just uh, be with Him, protect Him, watch over Him, and, and Peggy and their family, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
0: Thank you very much, Fred.
2: Appreciate
0: it. See you next week.